Hi, welcome back to Sacred Conversations with Jane Patton. Now, I will tell you, last our last podcast that we had, it was entitled Disappointment with God. I had my dad on um, for our podcast. I, I called it uh, The Doctor and the Daughter, and our conversation um, was probably one of the most listened to podcasts uh, that we've ever done, which, um, which is funny because it was only the second one that I've ever done. <laughs> it made it easy. Uh, it, we're gaining some momentum here with our second, with our second podcast. Um, but being that uh, we addressed a topic that people were very much interested in and how to deal with their emotions and their disappointment with God, um, I felt like the Lord laid it on my heart to uh, continue to dig into wisdom and uh, continue to have my father on for a season. We have about 10 different sessions that we're going to be taping with him, and it's all going to be oriented around family and marriage and relationships and finances and really trying to hang on to uh, some information that will help us in the long run when it comes to uh, to our families. And um, today we are going to, to start off very, very strong, and we're going to talk about marriage. And the topic of today's conversation, again, with, uh, with Dave Martin is, is happily ever after a myth. Is that a myth, Dad? Is, is you know, because I mean, every fairy tale st- storybook is that they lived, you know, happily ever after, the prince and the princess. Right. Well, what is reality, you know? To I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily necessarily reality. So how do we get to the place where there can be like a happily ever after? Well, I think Florence Littauer, I think it was, who said that after every wedding comes a marriage. Right. And for all the money and the investment and time and effort put into the wedding, almost no time is put into the marriage. Right. Couples just come together and think, well, we get married and we live happily ever after. And, and they take no time to really consider uh, what is this going to require. Mm-hmm. Um, in this particular message that I tried to put together, it was to deal, first of all, with some of the myths people have going into it. And if you can dispel the myths, then you then can deal with some, okay, some hardcore foundational truths that would, you know, make for a successful marriage. And anyone who gets married intends to stay married. That's usually how that works. But they don't know what it takes to get there. And so I sort of did this message to try to first address some myths and then in to try to heal some building blocks right. to help. One of the things that I've I've heard recently is that it's young men who get married and young men who go off to war. And the reason why is because young men have this mentality that nothing bad is ever going to happen to them. But older men wait to get married and they're hesitant to go to war because they realize it is totally different than what they originally thought. They've got some age, they've got some maturity. And I would tell you that people that have been married for any extent of time have recognized that there were a lot of myths that they believed going into marriage that in fact has left them very disillusioned and disappointed in their marriages. So what sort of myths can you identify just immediately off the bat that that we mistakenly step into marriage holding onto? Well, I think for even like with your mother and me, we've been married 52 years, uh, and yet going into our marriage, we were 19. And we thought, I mean, when we did our counseling with our pastor the question he asked me was, why do you want to marry her? And I said, because I love her. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a goofy question. <laughs> and then your mom was asked by the same pastor, why do you want to marry him? And she said, for his money. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> you know, we didn't have anything. And uh, we thought, that's fine. We'll get together. And so we, we married. And 
And after two or three years, I found that while we had the right sort of love to get married, we did not have the right kind of love to stay married. That's good. So we knew, and I knew especially, that something had to change. Um, now, there are different myths that people have going into marriage. It, doesn't, it isn't always the same for the same person. Uh, some people think, I'll have some people think, tell me in, in preparation for marriage. Well, we think living together will help prepare us for marriage. And I said, oh, so I said, uh, I mean, and they'll even say, well, you know, you don't have to buy a new car or a car without trying it out first or repair. You know, I've had one couple say, one guy said, well, you don't want to try a pair of shoes without trying them out first. And I said, oh, okay. So how did I look at the, the gal? And I said, so how do you feel if he doesn't marry you? You feel like a old pair of shoes? Mm -hmm. I mean, how does that make you feel? And, um, and then I like to share with them a couple studies, one, one by the University of South Carolina and the other by UCLA. They found that those couples who engage in premarital sex and cohabitation were more likely to be involved in adulterous and extramarital affairs after marriage. Wow. And experience less physical and emotional satisfaction after marriage. They also have a 50% greater risk of divorce than couples who do not engage in either premarital sex and cohabitation. And I just, that's not preacher talk. That's studies that were done by two of these universities. Wow. Um, another, another interesting myth is uh, we want the same things from our marriage. <laughs> well, that isn't necessarily true either. There's a great book out by Willard Harley called His Needs, Her Needs. And he identifies five different expectations that the female and the male want. Mm -hmm. For instance, men want, number one, sex, no surprise there. Uh, two, companionship. Three, an attractive spouse. Fourth, domestic support. And five, admiration. Hmm. Well, the female, the wife, she wants affection, conversation, honesty and openness, financial support, and family commitment. Well, they're like on two different levels. It's like CB language. He's on channel three, she's on channel five, and they pass like two ships in the night, mixing my metaphors, but you get the idea. Right. So we have to talk about all those things. Uh, a third, this is a great myth. This is a third one. Nothing he or she does could ever bother me. <laughs> And yeah. the crowd goes yeah, crazy. Right. I mean, oh, what? yeah, right. Um, well, anybody more, more than a week knows that's not true. Right. Uh, and also, this is one. Ours will be a 50-50 relationship. Well, I share with couples what your mom and I discovered. Anybody giving less than 100-100 will soon find themselves drawing pink slips from the emotional love bank. They'll be overdrawn. What is it? What um, so, would you say then? What is it? Because because I do hear that that is something that I hear a lot. That it's like fifty fifty. So what 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 does one hundred one hundred look like in a tangible, practical way in marriage? What is one hundred? We're both giving one hundred percent all the time. Well, I found that I, I learned along the way as I was trying to make changes in my own life and realizing things had to change. I realized that genuine love is my giving to Terry. My my wife's name Terry. Your mom's Terry. It's my giving to Terry what makes her feel good about getting, not what makes me feel good about giving. That's good. That's interesting. And I've had guys say, well, I just don't understand women, and I don't understand women. I said, okay, that's fine. You, you, you won't understand women. I said, but you are commanded in First Peter to dwell with your wife in an understanding way, which means you're to be a student of your spouse. You're to, to know what makes her tick, what are her needs. And I think that's why that his needs, her needs is so good because now you get to know what her needs are and you start giving 100% of your effort to meeting her needs rather than trying to get her to meet your needs. That's good. I think sometimes people get focused on the fact that this person is not meeting my needs and it's not meeting my mm -hmm. expectations. And so mm -hmm. then they stop giving at all, mm -hmm. right? I mean, right. we're stopped do anything. Um, this morning I got up and 
Mike had gone to the grocery store. I don't remember like even why he went or what he stopped for, but there was fruit Tic Tacs, like the bulk industrial size, mm -hmm. just sitting off next to my coffee maker. And I'm like, Mike, and I love fruit flavored Tic Tacs. It's just so silly and it's small, mm -hmm. but it showed that he put thought into, right? right? right into right. so to me, that looked like 100, 100 percent that just when he was out and about knowing that this is something that his wife likes that he just purchased that you know and put it off to the side and of course when that you know that does trigger then think well what does he like well he likes having a house that's orderly whenever he walks in that mm -hmm. brings him delight and uh, and that sort of thing so so but i know that there are times that your spouse is not giving 100 percent. and so what would you recommend to the spouse who's listening to this that's just like he does nothing there's nothing you know how well, am i supposed to give 100 percent when he gives nothing i think the great challenge and it is a challenge uh but to try to be sure i'm not giving performance-based acceptance to the other person like i love you if mm -hmm. or i'll love you when or i'll love you as soon as you shape up uh, genuine love is that I'll just, I love you. It's unilateral. I, I, I just do this how God loves us. And so we're in turn, uh, you know, scripture says that the husband's to love his wife like Christ loved the church. Well, of course that road runs both ways, but the point is that you're to love 100%. And I think when I don't find your mom responding correctly or in a way that demonstrates love back towards me, that for me, realize that, okay, Lord, I'm not responsible for her reactions to me. I am responsible for how I respond to her. That's good. And she may be having a bad day. She may have, you know, maybe it was with you all as growing up as kids or sure. something else. And, and of course, that gets into the building blocks of what it takes to make a strong relationship. We can get to that here in just a bit. But, but it's focusing on what am I responsible for? What does God hold me responsible for? In fact, I use the word responsibility. I spell it out on paper and I say, let's break. What, what is my responsibility? Right. Okay. And breaking the word down, it's my ability, second half of the word, my ability to respond, first part of the word, mm -hmm. rightly mm -hmm. or biblically or Christianly. And uh, so I'm focusing on what my part is. And, uh, and I find that God will deal and has, does often deal with Terry you know, if I will respond rightly. Women, not exclusively, but oftentimes are more responders than initiators. And so my challenge and my responsibility is to respond to her in such a way uh, that meets her needs and she knows that I'm meeting her needs in ways that she interprets as being loving. Let me give you a classic example. At our 12th anniversary, where I blew it, and this is where I blew it. <laughs> On our 12th anniversary, I bought her a dozen yellow roses. I had to be out of town at some kind of conference where I was supposed to learn how to be a better husband, right? <laughs> <laughs> On our 12th anniversary, not the time to be gone. Right. But anyway, I was gone, and I ordered them. And so I got back home, and I'm coming in, and I see these red roses, and they're kind of wilted, and your mom's in the bathroom, and she's cleaning out the commode. I mean, this is very home, down-based kind, of, I mean, kind of experience. And I, I looked, I walked into the room, and I... And of course, what I'm expecting is an attaboy, you know, a pat on the back. Aren't sure. you a good boy? You did these things. Well, I said, I, I thought I ordered yellow. Yeah, they were wilted when they came. And she said, so I took them back. And they didn't have any more yellow, so they gave me red. What? what? Why'd you buy them? You know we can't afford them. <laughs> Why did you so, buy those? Yeah, yeah. She so, was mad. Anyway, she was not happy camper. <laughs> <laughs> and so instead of getting an attaboy, it's like, oops, you know. And so uh, she said, why don't you buy some, me something I would want? And I'm thinking... And so I got this uh, sarcastic attitude. I said, well, what would you want it? She said, well, you could have bought me a book. And I said, how unromantic. A book. A book. <laughs> you know, and this is like... Happy anniversary. This 10-watt light bulb goes off in my, my mind above my head. And that's when I got this revelation of what real love is. That mm -hmm. real love is my giving to her 
what makes her feel good about getting, not what make necessarily makes me feel good about giving. Oh, that's good. So I bought her a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> and now 52 years later, yeah, yeah. she's got a whole library. She, got, she does. <laughs> You know, but uh, but also she she knew that my one of my main love languages and, and that book is so helpful for us love languages five love languages by but, Gary Smalley mm-hmm, is that who yeah that? Okay. and and words of affirmation are one of my love languages mm-hmm. so I will uh, if she'll say something to me like after I've spoken on a Sunday she'll she'll say oh that was really helpful well if she doesn't say anything on the way home I think I blew it because she isn't sure. saying anything when she gives me a card she'll underline words you know because that's and I intend underline words because words of affirmation uh, so that's one of the love languages and I know it is for her dad I just want you to know I think you're wonderful <laughs> I think you're the best dad in the entire world. Oh, that's so good. (laughs) Thank you for this. Yeah. It's funny because I am very much that way. And in fact, growing up, I always noticed that in all of our cards, you did go out of your way to like really underline the words in different things that we would read. And now I do that also with my family. But I think that it is so important. The goal is not to understand how men think or how women think, but to really understand how your spouse thanks mm-hmm. because it's your marriage this covenant that God has brought together yeah. Yeah. Uh, between these two people and so you don't have to be an expert on men or an expert on mm-hmm. women you really want to focus on your one spouse um, one of the things that you said talked about how to put building blocks together mm. in order to build I mean some and and we can be honest and, and people who listen to this podcast know a little bit about my story of course I was married at 19 was divorced by the age of 21 because my husband at that time found somebody else that that just seemed to be a better option um, at 21 years of age. And then, of course, got married again. I've been married now almost 21 years this year. But there are certain building blocks. Um, and I think, you know, going back to my first marriage, it was a shattering. There was a shattering mm-hmm. that happened in my life. Mm-hmm. And anything that I had built on had been shattered. And I, and I know that there are people who will be listening to this that thought they had something good. They had a good foundation and something has shattered them along the way. What sort of building blocks can they begin putting into place so that they can rebuild their lives or rebuild their marriages, or if they've not had a shattering effect, maybe they're thinking about getting married. And what are some, just some healthy practices that they can begin to put in place so that happily ever after does not need to be a myth, Mm. but that they can finish this race of marriage out together. I I want to finish, I, I want to rather change the analogy of building blocks to rods in concrete. Now let me give you a story, a true story of what happened to your mother and I in a house in South County, St. Louis. Uh, our driveway was sloped and it was cracking and breaking up. And so I decided that well, obviously I need to get a new driveway. And mm-hmm. so I had the driveway torn out. And when it was torn out, the gentleman doing the work said they found something. It, it surprised them that whoever had originally poured the concrete did not put wire mesh or rods down in the concrete. So what that simply meant, they just poured it on the ground. So when the ground thawed in the spring or froze in the winter, the concrete was rising and falling and rising and falling until mm-hmm. it just broke apart. And they said, you need to put like rods or wire mesh down here so that when it rises and falls, the concrete will stay together. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even when he told me that, I thought that is a perfect parallel to marriage because we go through seasons, we have great times, spring, you know, in the summer, and then we have fall and we have winter, mm-hmm. you know, and hot and blazing in August, you know, these angry hard times. And so when the the seasons of marriage, as your, as your marriage rises and falls, like the driveway, through seasons, you think, what is it that holds the concrete together mm-hmm. in, in the relationship? 
So I would rather just say that I, there's like five rods that I would suggest we put down into the concrete. Not that you have to report it, but you drive them into the concrete to help hold these together. Uh, the first rod would be mutual acceptance and encouragement. A mutual acceptance and encouragement. And, and these are biblically framed, so like for Romans 15, 7, for instance, it says, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. I mean, as we are, now God loves us where we are, but he also loves us too much to leave us as we are. Right. So he's going to keep changing us. Uh, and yet, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, Paul adds, he says, so encourage each other, build each other up. Now, again, in marriage, you can have something that's annoying and irritating, exasperating, aggravating, agitating. You know, something could be something minor. <laughs> Your mother and I, you know, I used to tap my fingers on the table. You know, we were playing some card game or whatever, and I wasn't even aware of it. And then, <laughs> and then your mom would be over there tapping her fingers. <laughs> and I'm looking, to draw attention yeah, to yeah, it. What are you doing? Well, that's what you do. I said, oh, okay. So obviously that aggravated her, you know. So something minor, it's slurping soda. I mean, she would let me know that she slurps soda. It's like... <laughs> Can we not do that? You know. So if I realize I'm aggravating her, I, I, I tell you what, you, you, I tried these words. These are the worst things you could say. I learned a lot by doing something wrong, you know. And uh, I, I used to say, sadly, sadly, that well, you know what? I was like this one before we got married. So if you didn't like this, why'd you marry me? Well, that really doesn't go very far in making a, a great marriage, right? You know. I think you realize that no, I want this to get better. And yeah, there are parts where I need to change. Now, sure. It, did she need to change? Yeah, but it was interesting that she made the changes as she saw me changing. That doesn't guarantee it for another person, but, but Terry's responder, and she was seeing me making these changes, and so she was reading books also on how to be a better wife and better mother. And so, actually, I saw changes in her before I saw them in me. That's God used that to convict me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think know? that we're going to pause there for a second. That's sure. one thing. Sometimes I know in marriage style situations is that we really believe that if, it, okay, so if I'm going to be different, then I'm going to see immediate change in my spouse. And yeah. that's that's not truth. We live in a microwave society where we need something to eat. We pop something in the microwave. It pops out in three minutes and everybody's happy. But that's not the way it works with people. No. And so sometimes we just need to give it time. We continue to do what God has called us to do, to love how God has called us to love and give God time and give that person time time to begin to make the changes and allow God to work on their lives so that it becomes mutually. And, and yet, and yet, am I doing it in order to get them to change? Or am I changing because I need to change? That's good. I think that's kind of the issue here. I think I need to be willing to let God change me, whether or not Terry changes. Uh, otherwise, this is performance-based. I love you if, or I love you when, or I'll make the changes if. And it's not really because I think I need to change. I Maybe you think I need to change it, and so I don't want to change, and I'm doing this to get you to get off my back. I mean, this, right. the, the whole motive has to be out of genuine love for God to, to make me the man God wants me to be, to make me the father and husband that I need to be. One of the things that I notice in ministry is that we're always either operating out of a lack uh, or a, a position of lack or a position of abundance. And I've noticed that if I'm not feeling loved in my life, then I don't extend love as freely and I'm operating out of a feeling of lack, right? So I am on empty. I have nothing to give somebody else. Um, and, and that could be true on other parallels, right? And so, but we're either operating out of a position of lack or a position of abundance. And I think what I have found in this particular area when it comes to loving 
and not loving in trying to get a response out of it is that I've got it. I've got to be so filled up with knowing that I am loved by God. That's that agape love that he loves me, that he's with me, that he is directing me, that he is um, always um, present in my life and powerful. And out of that abundance, then I'm able to give the kind of love to Mike that Mike needs. Otherwise, I don't have it. I don't have it. If the Lord does not first put it in me, then I don't have it to give to somebody else. So the way that I have to operate this, flesh this out in my own life, is to first start with the Lord. And sometimes it's morning, noon, and night going back to be filled up. And just, you know, because we're just disappointed. Somebody responds ugly. Immediately in our flesh, we don't want to, right? We don't want it. And so if we're not being given what we need by God, in order to love other people the way God wants us to love them, then it's we're DOA, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we really need the Lord to fill us with himself in order for that to flood out of us to the people in our world. Yeah, in Psalm 62, 5, King James English, it says, My soul wait thou only on God, for my expectations are from him. Well, if my expectations are from people, then the bad, if, let's suppose hypothetically you have 10 expectations in marriage. I expect my Terry to be faithful. I expect her to keep the house clean. You know, I expect her to, to, to do all these things, whatever they may be. And they may be legitimate expectations. Sure. However, suppose she only does six. That's if she's doing the best she can. Or conversely, me, I'm only doing six. The, the, the spouse, or it can not just be in marriage, it's in work relationships, it's with the government, it's with churches and pastors. I mean, it's just, you can apply this anywhere. We have expectations of what we expect from people. The difference between what the person does, let's say level five or six, and what they, and, and our expectations, which is level 10, that basis of the difference, those four points of what they're not doing, is the basis of bitterness That's good. in relationships. And what the other person tends to focus on is what they're not doing. You know, if, honey, if you only made a little more money, or honey, if you just would stop doing this or start doing that, well, the other person hearing it then that demotivates them. They Now they start doing less at five, four, three, two, one. Now they just show up. They come home, but they're not doing nine things. And all that does to the other person is increase their bitterness because it's gone from four things they didn't do or did do they wish it wouldn't to six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You think, well, this is, how do you get out, how do you get out of this? Well, you realize that Psalm 62, five says, my soul wait thou only on God for my expectations are from him. So if I sharing with couples, I said, you need to, first of all, uh, give your expectations to God. You know, give them to God and say, God, I just give my husband my expectations to you. And I get back from you, Lord, whatever you want me to have just as a, as a gift, as a privilege. And you, your mom actually figured this out before I did. And, and we had this thing going on where she was becoming increasingly angry and bitter and I was decreasingly you know, doing things. And I remember one time, for instance, I would come, one example, one of many, I would come home late. Uh, you know, I was, we were in grad school. I was in seminary and uh, here I am a Christian a pastor in seminary, and your mom and I are, are we're heading like two ships in opposite directions in our marriage. It's like you look on the outside, we're wonderful, but on the inside, we're not wonderful. Right. And, and and so she figured this out, and so I mean, she learned what to do, and so she gave her expectations to God, and now she's just grateful if I showed up. <laughs> so I <laughs> so I come home one night. She had spaghetti. I mean, spaghetti was supposed to be ready at five. I was supposed to be there at five. I was here at six thirty. I'm just irresponsible. And I come in at 6.30 and I kind of throw my hat in the door, you know, thinking chills. Because I knew how she'd react. I, I, I just knew. And I knew how to push the buttons to make her feel bad about what I'd done. Sure. I'm just, I'm just being honest, right? Yeah. And so I walk in and she comes to the door and says, honey, I'm so glad to have you. I'm so good <laughs> to see you. She hugs me. And I take her by both arms. I push her back. And I, and I said, 
what's going on? <laughs> this is so not how I expected her to respond. And then, no, so come on in. I'll just get the spaghettis. You know, kind of unstick it here with some cold water or something. So she puts it on. And the whole time I'm eating, while I'm eating the spaghetti, I'm looking at her across the table. <laughs> and she's just smiling. You know, she knew. And, and, of course, immediately I felt bad because I knew I was wrong, uh-huh. but I couldn't. I, she had somehow changed the wiring in the circuitry. <laughs> Whatever button I was pushing was not working. And so I thought, okay, I, I was wrong, so I need to start working. And, and the thing that clinched it, I was a youth pastor at the time, and the pastor, before he let me go, before you let you go. Yeah, I was there six months. I, oh, I learned this This is not in my DNA to be yeah. a youth pastor. Yeah. But he said to me, he said, do you know what your problem is? I said, no, what's my problem? He said, you're irresponsible. <laughs> so I break into Frank Sinatra's Call Me Irresponsible. Oh, my gosh, Dad. But I look back. I know it's terrible. Yeah. But I look back, and it, that was a huge turning point. I, I had big doors swing on small hinges. That's good. And I realized he was right. He read my mail. Yeah. And I went back to seminary, moved back to Fort Worth, and I just, I got a job. I dropped out of school. I was at 9 to 5. I was home by 5.30. Mm-hmm. In other words, I, I became so responsible. I squeaked. And, you are very responsible. And, but but very that, responsible. God used someone. You know, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Yeah. And the best thing he said to me was, what's that? I didn't want to hear it, but he was right. Yeah. And, and so God just began, like, like I said, working in reconstruction work in my own life and trying to drive these rods down into my own life. Um, a second, let me just touch on a second rod yeah. real quick, and that is honest communication and resolution. Honest communication. And communication is more than just words. Words are only a part of it. Actually, a uh, study was done on what makes up communication. It's uh, 7% of the words, and so people say, well, I don't know what to say. Well, limited vocabulary is really not the issue. Uh, 35% is voice inflection, hmm. a tone of voice, and 58% is body language. In other words, if I look at a little baby, and I look at the little baby, and I say to this baby, I hate you, I hate you. <laughs> that may be the words I hate, but the baby, because of the voice inflection and the empathy and the voice, perceives love, acceptance, and warmth. On the same, you know, conversely, as adults, I may, you know, fold my arms and and say to you, you know, with a scowl on my face, I hear you. Well, I might have used the words, I hear you, but that's not what I was conveying through mm-hmm. tone of voice and body language. Mm-hmm. So you want to get the things in sync, you know, with what you're trying to say. And if I'm being defensive and name-calling, mockery and stonewalling, which, by the way, 85% of men do that. You know, it's called the turtle syndrome. You know, they'll, they'll shrink into their shell, and if they feel like these verbal bombs are being dropped, they just, you know... And they know it drives the person up the wall, but of course that does nothing to build the relationship. So right. guys need to be able to come out of this shell and feel like it's safe for him to be heard, him or her to be heard. But it's trying to work through a conversation. And, and Paul speaks about this, Colossians 3.9, he says, don't lie to each other. Ephesians 4.15 and 26, he says, to speak the truth in love. In your anger, do not sin. Uh, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And uh, James 3, 17, 18, modern English says, the wisdom that comes from above allows discussion and is willing to yield to others instead of my always having to be right. You know, I thought, you know, when there, she's right, I said, you know what, you got a great point, hon. Yeah. I never thought of that. I appreciate that. That's yeah. good. And, and trying to resolve the conflict, not letting it drag on day and day after day and whatever. Um, so, again, uh, this is interesting. A survey done a few years ago discovered that those who claim to be the happiest marriage are also the ones who are least likely to say they had to be a winner or loser when dealing with 
problems. Wow, I see. That's huge because yeah, competition is. is huge. Who's yeah, going to win this yeah, argument? That's right, who's that's the right. most right? Right, right? right? Like right. we're both right, but who's the most right? Yeah. Oh right. my goodness. The third rod into the concrete is what I call flexible roles and responsibilities. Uh, we tend to carry into our marriages what we, we from our family of origin, how we saw the dads. That's how we tend to do. Although the, my dad was an alcoholic father, and I thought, I, I know what I don't want. I just didn't know how to do what I did want. Sure. And uh, that's why I'm reading a lot of books, because I figure I've got to learn. You know, this didn't come with a, you know, a manual. Right. And uh, so marriage. And so I'm trying to figure out by reading these books, I realize that, that there are different roles and responsibilities in, in the marriage. And there's not a one-size-fits-all. You, right. you, you work through this, and you figure out you know, what is it that would help us accomplish the same goal. Like... For your mom, she always, she, she likes a nice house, okay, and she likes to clean, and, and I used to say in the early years, you know, well, I make the money, and she cleans the house, and she takes care of the kids, and I earn the money, and it's like, uh, no, there's a lot more to it than that, yeah. and so uh, I realized that, for instance, like cleaning the house, even here, we have a smaller house, but my point was is that there are certain things that she likes me to do. And there's the things that she will do. And so every time comes time to clean the house, I already know what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. You know, and I like, I like knowing what I, I one time she said something like, uh, I, I, I asked her, well, what is it you would want me to do? And then she said, well, if I have to tell you, mm. and she like, I said, hold it. And I put a timeout, yeah. hands up, timeout sign. I said, listen, mind reading was not in the contract. Right. I said, you know me well enough to know I won't do it if I don't want to do it. And I'm asking you how to do it or what it is you want to do. I'll do it. I just need to know because right. I can't read your mind. Right. And she looked at me and she kind of, you know, rolled her eyes for a moment, not in sarcasm, but thinking about it. She said, you know, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. And so she'll share it now with me. And I'm glad to do it. I want to do what pleases her. I just, it just helps me to know specifically what it is that will please her. I think that's really a good point, too, that even in this whole conversation that we're having here, nothing is really exclusive truly to men or to women that God has like for instance even in our home Mike is a better cook his mm-hmm. family grew up owning a restaurant do you mm-hmm. know what I mean mm-hmm. he, he knows how to he uses spices and all kinds of things that I have no idea what they are but right. that's okay because I teach women about right. the Lord well Mike is not going to teach women about the Lord and so mm-hmm. we operate in different but most people might think that well you should always clean cook and clean but Mike those are high on Mike's list. He enjoys doing those things. He likes them at a certain way. So I think it's good not to pigeonhole men this way and women this way, but to find out what is God doing in your marriage with these two very unique personalities and strengths. Right. With the five love languages, I learned that one of your, your mother's primary love language, we, we like to have usually two or three dialects, whatever, but the primary for her is acts of service. Right. And so, and she shows her love through acts of service. I mean, she likes to iron my clothes. She likes to fold my clothes. So, I people I would you, die. Well, yeah, I'm just, <laughs> that's terrible. so not yours. Okay, it's not. Right. okay, but it is her. And so, yeah. if I if I fold the laundry, uh, she feels loved. If she feels like if I you know, put it away, if I put the, my dirty clothes in the basket, you know, or if I'll put them in the washer, you know, after she's put in the soap, because I don't know how much soap to put in there. Right. But my point is that if I'll take the dishes to the sink, I'll clean the dishes or put them in the dishwasher. I won't leave them for her. That's acts of service. And my stock value goes up right. with her because I'm loving her in ways that she interprets as being loving. Yeah. And uh, not because I have to, but because I want to. Uh, and again, this whole thing on roles and responsibilities, Ephesians 5, 21, 22, 25, says, place yourselves under each other's authority out of respect for Christ. So I'm submitting myself to Terry as well as her to me. 
And then uh, place yourself under your husband's authority. You place yourself under the Lord's authority. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. You know, if I'm loving Terry in the way that Christ loves the church, she usually has no problem wanting to respond to that positively to me. I think more wives would probably respond differently to their husband if the husband loved her like Christ loved the church. But again, that's just knowing something and then figuring out what is her love language. A fourth, let me give you a fourth. There's two more rods. I'm going to leave actually the most important to the last. But the fourth is pretty high. Um, the important level is sort of an ascending level here that I'm going with. It's real forgiveness and forgetfulness. Uh, it's not keeping track, not keeping score. You know, whenever somebody does something wrong. Right. Uh, real forgiveness is my giving up the right to hurt you for your hurting me. That's good. I just thought, when I first heard that, I thought, boy, that is the truth. And forgetfulness, I put like air quotes around that word. So I hope you'll say, well, I can forgive, but I can't forget. And my response to them, I said, well, I can understand that. I said, but I can guarantee you, you will never forget until you forgive. That's good. And forgiveness is unilateral. Matthew 18, 21 to 35, a person could read that. I won't quote it. But, I mean, Jesus spells it out to Peter. First of all, how often shall I forgive my brother? And you could substitute brother for wife, sister, uncle, pastor, whoever boss, and, uh, and I forgive him seven times, and to the Jews, seven was the perfect number, and Jesus says, no, not seven, but 70 times seven, which doesn't mean you forgive 490 times, and 491st, you deck them, but he goes on to the whole story about a, a king forgives a servant a debt he couldn't pay, we're the servant in the story, the king in the story is God, and the servant's told to pay up, he goes to prison, pleads for mercy, the king gives mercy, forgives the entire debt, and then the servant, I call him servant A, goes out and finds servant B, servant B owes him like a hundred bucks, says, pay up or I'll throw you into prison. Servant B pleads for mercy like servant A did to the king. Servant A says, no, he doesn't do it. Throws him into prison. Other people tell the king. King calls servant A in. Says, you're a wicked servant. How is it you got to ask me to forgive you all of your debt and you weren't forgiving to, willing to forgive that, that debt. And you're going into a prison and you're not coming out until you pay the uttermost farthing, King James English. Well, to me, I tell people, I said, that you put yourself in your own prison because you were unwilling in light of the greater, in light of the greater, the debt, my sin debt, my sin debt, my, to the king, a debt I can hope to pay. In light of the greater, Jesus is saying, I want you to relieve, relieve this, release this person from what they did to you. Jesus isn't saying they didn't hurt you. Jesus isn't saying they're not going to someday deal with that, or he'll, de he'll deal with them with that. But for your part, you forgive. That's good. And the deeper the wound, the longer the time it takes to heal. Yeah. Uh, some people say, well, I forgive him, but I keep him this problem. Oh, it'll keep, I have a paper, skin, a paper skin cut, you know, from a paper cut. That'll heal overnight. But if I have a deep, mortal, seemingly mortal wound, it may take, there was one wound I had that took me seven years. And I had to keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. In light of the greater, God has forgiven me my sin debt, I chose to release this lesser. Right. And, and in doing so, it, it leaves a scar, yeah, but now there's no, you touch it and there's no pain. There's, in fact, there's no feeling at all. Uh, you know, Dave, your, your brother, our son, he had this car wreck and he has all kinds of scars. Right. And, uh, but because it healed properly from the inside out, now there's, it tells a story, but it doesn't have any emotion or feeling attached to it. So, but it's just choosing to forgive. It's, it's a unilateral, not, not when they change, but to, to change. C.S. Lewis once put it like this. He says, everyone claims forgiveness is a wonderful idea until they have something have to, to forgive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. Until they have to do it. Yeah, until yeah. they have to do it. Um, well, let me give you the, the final rod. And this is, to me, it's called spiritual faith and commitment. A spiritual faith is, is when both people are on the same level playing field spiritually. This is a big part uh, in healthy or healthier relationships. You know, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. 
um, and we're making a vow. Ecclesiastes 5 talks about the vow that we make, and so we are committed to the Lord. The, the analogy I use for couples coming in for counseling, I said, I'd like to draw a diagram, a, a, a pyramid, <clears throat> pardon me, and uh, at the too far bottom uh, on the pyramid, I said, I'll place a man and a woman. I'll draw a thick stick figure. Like a triangle. Again, a yeah, pyramid, triangle, triangle. Triangles. Yeah, pyramid, triangle. And at the top of it, I will put God. I'll just put God, the word God, his name, God. And, and I'll say, right now at the base, you two are at your furthermost points. As you draw closer to God up the pyramid, you also shorten the distance between you two as you near, get nearer to the Lord. Now, it's possible, of course, that one or the other may draw closer to God and the other one is still bottom at the bottom of the pyramid. And I understand that and I've, I've, I've dealt with that and approached that. And, but my, my point is that for now, it's that you want to, as much as possible, to have a joint commitment spiritually to grow. Because as you grow, you draw not only closer to him, but you grow closer to each other. And uh, I had one couple, I'm going to tell a quick story about this one. I had one couple... Uh, I was asked to visit them by a pastor. I was a teaching pastor at that time uh, in a church, and he, this pastor asked me to go, would I visit this couple? I said, sure. So I went there, and they were living together, and I went there, and I got. To, I said, it's so good to meet you and be in your home, and thank you for letting me come. And I said, um, tell me your spiritual journey. And uh, for her, she had a relationship with Christ. It was clear that she did. She knew she when she trusted Christ and be your savior. She wasn't really wouldn't say that she was walking with him right then, but she knew she had that. Well, I asked him. He didn't have one. He didn't pretend to have one. And so I, I asked this question. I said, let me ask you a personal question. I said, uh, not maybe that was personal too, but this is a personal question. And that uh, I said, do you intend to stay married? And they looked at me like, what, what do you mean? I said, well, you're going to get married, but do you intend to stay married? And I said, well, yeah. I said, why? They said, why would you ask that? I said, well, I said, studies have shown, which I've already quoted here, that couples who live together have a greater risk of divorce than those who don't live together. In fact, I could give you like 10 reasons why it's not in your best interest to live together if you really want your marriage to be a success. And they said, I said, would you like to know them? And I said, well, yeah. I said, okay, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, let's get back together in a week and, and I'll share them with you and then... Uh, you tell me what you think. So I got the material. I gave, got back with them. I said, here it is. You can read it. And I also had a book that I found that was very helpful. And it's called, and it's an excellent, excellent resource. But it's called uh, Living Together, Myths, Risks, and Answers by Mike and Harriet McManus. And I left the book with them. And I, I, mean, I walked through the 10 things and left the book. I said, tell you what, you guys think, think about it, talk about it, pray about it. And let me know in a week. I'll come back in a week. And then you let me know what you want to do. So I went back in a week, and so after I walked in and said the small talk, I sat down, and she said, she said, we have agreed to separate physically until we get married, and, and marriage was going to be like some months away, and now I'll let you guys talk. And she walked outside, and after she closed the door, I looked at him, and I said, this is clearly more difficult for you than her. <laughs> <laughs> he said, don't you know? <laughs> well, as it turned out, he made a commitment to Christ, and then they made a commitment to each other to do it God's way. You see, a lot of folks want the trappings of the church, but they don't want the teachings of the church. Mm -hmm. They want the building. They want the atmosphere, but they don't want what... And they're asking God to bless it, and God's not going to bless mm -hmm. what is clearly cross-wired with his word and with his intent on how to build a healthy, happier marriage. So, in any case, as it turned out, they both did it. They 
worked through, they read the books, they began doing these things, you know, trying to undo the damage of things that had already been done, how to repair, and, and they, they rebuilt. I, never, I was honored to do their wedding. And I'll never forget, as I was walking up to, with him, it was an outdoor wedding in a park, and we were walking up, he looked at me and he said, thank you. Wow. Thank you. Now they're, Mary got two great kids, and it's just, but I'm just saying, if you want God's blessing, you have to do God's will, God's way. Right. And, and he will provide blessing if we're open, if we're teachable, if we're willing to let God deal with us individually, not just, well, I'll do it if you'll do it. No, I, I need to do it. Right. And that's what I learned in our marriage. I need to do this whether Terry changes or not. And uh, as it turns out, kind of as a bonus, and she did. You know, yeah. so I'm just grateful, right? I think it's great. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your time today. Sure. Um, I always feel like no matter what I'm doing, if I am teaching, doing a live teaching or doing a retreat or a conference or a keynote or now doing podcasting, I feel like I'm just a farmer just throwing seed out there. And this is just another, you know, just more seed that I'm throwing out. And I hope that people um, can overcome some of the myths you know, that they have about marriage and know that marriage is a good thing and it's a godly thing and it can be a very rewarding thing and um, and that God can heal those broken places and God can help you put these rods into into the concrete and the foundation of your marriage and, and that at any time, he can do that because he is a God who creates. He's the cre- He hasn't stopped creating. He's not going to ever look at you and say, you've made an entirely too big of a mess of your marriage. It's completely hopeless. Bounce now. I can't do anything with this mess. He is the master architect. He is a master creator, master recreator. And so um, I hope that people can know that happily ever after is a is a true, it, it can happen it, for people. And, um, and, and to know that, Um, If they're in just this hard place that Jesus is their healer and that he can heal broken hearts and he can restore broken dreams and he can restore broken marriages. And uh, I don't have time to give my whole testimony, but I can sure tell you that I'm living testament of that as well. So thank you, Dad, for your time on my (laughs) podcast. And uh, until we meet again, I appreciate it. Love you. Love you.